This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, a senior writer at Barron's. Thanks so much for joining us for another timely conversation. It is my pleasure to welcome Cormac Kinney, founder and CEO of Diamond Standard, as my guest today. Before we jump into our conversation on investing in diamonds, I wanted to briefly share some of Cormac's background. He is a fintech entrepreneur who has spent decades building trading systems and working as a quantitative trader. He also trademarked the term heat map and used heat mapping to show financial market information. For the past several years, he has been building what is now the world's first producer of fungible diamond commodities. Welcome, Cormac. Thank you, Lauren. It's great to be here with you. It's great to have you. It's it's really a fascinating uh, topic, and I'm excited to get started. So investors have been buying gold, silver, platinum, lots of other kinds of commodities for decades. But diamonds, which are, I believe, more valuable by weight, have been out of reach to investors. Why was that the case? Well, that's right. And that's what really attracted me to diamonds. It's it's an, a $1.2 trillion market. That's the above ground supply of diamonds. And at $1.2 trillion, that's more valuable than all of the silver, platinum, and palladium in the world. So diamonds are second actually only to gold in their, in their value. And by weight, obviously, diamonds are tremendously valuable. In fact, they're weighed in fractions of a gram. But the problem with diamonds is that every diamond is a little bit different. And their value really depends on their the, the three C's, the carat weight, the color, the clarity, and uh, the cut. I should have said four C's. And I think if you've ever shopped for a diamond, you probably noticed as they become larger or as they become colorless, they become exponentially more valuable. And the problem for investors was that there was never a way to mark to market those diamonds. You never know what they're worth. There was no uh, price discovery mechanism, no trading venue, and no way to get liquidity. So very often you could, in, you could easily buy diamonds, but if a consumer or investor ever tried to sell them, they would take a very serious haircut. Our goal was to create a fungible unit, just like a gold bar, and that would enable daily price discovery and liquidity because every bar is equal. So you mentioned the haircut, and I think you know, if if I tried to go and sell my grandmother's diamond, for example, I would perhaps go to the store and see one that was very similar that you know um, was priced at a very different price. And a fun fact that I heard you mention uh, on one of the podcasts that you were on was that by the time you buy a diamond in the jewelry store at retail, uh, on average, you're the sixth person to own that, I guess, that stone by the time you buy it. Um, that's that's pretty amazing. Um, I guess I'm curious about where those steps are. Well, the first one is digging the stone out of the out of the ground. Yeah. And there's actually only about seven companies that that manage all of the diamond mines. Companies like De Beers and Rio Tinto and Dominion Diamond, Lucara, et cetera. 
and they dig up. That's the first hand. And then those diamonds in the rough form are generally tendered or sold to really the 200 largest diamond cutting companies. And that's the second hand. After that, there's a whole world, after the diamonds are cut, there's a whole world of middlemen, these traders and brokers who may organize diamonds by carat weight or by color, and they move them around the world and trade them in these different exchanges like Antwerp and Mumbai and Tel Aviv. And finally, they end up wherever the jewelry manufacturer is. And the jewelry manufacturer then sells it to a retailer who finally sells it to you. And so it's you can see pretty quickly how each one of those steps adds cost. And each one of them adds a markup. And the key motivation of Diamond Standard was to eliminate all of those, those markups. We buy diamonds directly from the companies that cut the diamonds, and we basically seal them at cost. And that's why when you sell a Diamond Standard commodity, you're not giving back that haircut of all those markups. You're able to sell it on average for 99% of what the current market price is. Really interesting. So let's talk a little about um, what you've been building uh, at Diamond Standard and how you have solved some of those challenges that have existed for all these decades in terms of why it took so long for diamonds to be an investable asset. Well, yeah, my, my background is computer science. I have three degrees from Carnegie Mellon. And as you mentioned, I, I spent many years building trading systems and doing quantitative trading. So I'm a tech nerd at heart and very quantitative. And that was the approach I took. And it really took an outsider to the diamond world. And, and I only learned about diamonds because my wife is a diamond dealer and a jewelry designer. And so from her, I became educated. And it's an unusual combination of skills, but that's what made Diamond Standard possible. And the way it works is we have no opinion about the price of diamonds but we are actually the world's first market maker. And we bid on millions of different types of diamonds every day. We make about 16 million bids a day. Um, and we buy from a, a, a large number of vendors. What we're buying is actually a statistical sample of all the different varieties of diamonds. And the sample we buy this week has to be equivalent to every sample we've ever bought in history. So it's through the magic of math and, and the law of large numbers that we're able to transparently buy large groups of diamonds that we can prove are always equal. And then the last step of our process is that we had a breakthrough in optimization, which combines this nonlinear aspect of diamonds with the integer aspect because you, know, you can't break a diamond in half. So we have to use whole numbers to sort diamonds into coins and bars. And that optimization ensures that every bar or coin is equivalent. They always add up to the same total carat weight, total color, total clarity, et cetera. And it's because of that standardization and the fact that it's all done under regulatory supervision and it's audited by Deloitte We've been able to so far get three regulators to approve our commodities as what's called good for delivery, meaning that they can be held by major uh, institutional investors, 
but also be used to settle futures contracts, for example, on the CME. So unfortunately, we don't have a camera, so our listeners will have to, I guess they use their powers of visualization, but perhaps you can just describe the coin and the bar so that they can get some sort of concept of what it is that you're talking about. Yeah, so to make it as familiar as possible to the consumers of gold commodities, you know, people have gold coins and gold bars, we actually use that same form factor to make diamond coins and bars. But in the case of diamond standard, the commodities are actually, they're very beautiful. They're transparent plastic. And inside are eight to nine diamonds. And they're uh, with that plastic, it's the same size as a, as a gold coin or the same size as a one ounce gold bar. But they're obviously a lot more valuable uh, our diamond coins today are trading at $5,400 and our diamond bars are $54,000. But in addition to the diamonds, there's actually a wireless computer chip inside each coin or bar, which makes this into the world's first smart commodity. It's both physical and digital. Wow. And can you talk a little bit about the role of, of blockchain uh, in, in this product? Yeah, so it was very important. You know, we went through all this trouble of getting regulatory supervision when we buy the diamonds and we make the bars. And we got Deloitte to be our auditor, that they verify everything. But once you're holding it in your hand, you don't know any of that information. So we publish all of the data about the diamonds that we buy, about their certificates, what makes each bar fair. We publish that on a, on a public blockchain. And so that is, and it's also programmed into the chip. So whoever receives the bar, they also receive all of the diamond certificates, all of the information that proves that their bar is fair. The other interesting feature is that when the bars or coins are delivered to a vault, which in our case is generally Brinks, a token comes out of the bar. It's actually issued by the bar or coin itself and that token is a vault receipt. It's proof that that bar is sitting at Brinks. And that token can be traded just like a Bitcoin or other crypto. And whoever owns the token, they own the bar. As a result of that, the trading in our commodities is extremely efficient. In fact, there's no fees. Anyone can go to our spot market and they can buy and sell these commodities with no fees and have instant settlement. So we're going to dive into the investment thesis for earning diamonds. But before we do, a quick reminder to the audience that if you do have questions for Cormac, uh, please submit, uh, submit them in the Q&A. Uh, we'll get to those uh, towards the end of our conversation. So let's go back to this investment thesis for earning diamonds. Uh, we know why people want to own diamonds for jewelry purposes, but what's the investment thesis for earning diamonds as part of an investment portfolio? So there's a couple interesting aspects. So number one, if you look at any precious metal, even obscure ones like palladium or rhodium, it turns out that investors have acquired at least 15% of the global supply of every precious metal. And investors hold precious metals because it's a hard asset. It's not a liability on a balance sheet of a broker or of an issuer like a stock. There's no way for a commodity to go bankrupt, for example. And hard assets historically have been a tremendously viable hedge in times of inflation. 
And a lot of people think right now that we're in a commodity super cycle where commodities trend, tend to go up in value for 10 to 15 years. And we've seen that recently in gold uh, as well as in diamonds. So diamonds are an, a newly accessible natural resource as a commodity. And the number one investment thesis is that investors are now starting to build positions. We think that diamonds will catch up with other precious metals in that 15% of all diamonds will be bought by investors over the next 10 or 20 years. And that will have a significant impact on price. But the other uh, aspect of the investment thesis is actually very simple supply and demand. The supply of diamonds is actually falling. People think diamonds are unlimited. They're really not. In fact, there's been no diamond mines discovered in over 20 years. The last mines were discovered in far northern Canada. And the supply of diamonds per year is falling by 3 to 5% per year. The only new diamonds are the ones being found uh, off, off uh, shore that have been washed out to sea over tens of thousands of years. But at the same time, the supply is diminishing. The demand for natural diamonds has actually been increasing and is projected to continue to increase. And we're seeing that especially in China, where there's a lot more consumers buying diamonds. But we're also seeing increasing demand for diamonds on every, every continent. So you have an unusual case of falling supply and increasing demand. And at the same time, we have a newly accessible commodity creating tremendously larger demand really out of left field. So, you know, Cormac, we were originally supposed to have this conversation, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, and as I'm sure listeners uh, well know, we had Silicon Valley bank uh, collapse, and there was a, a something of a, a banking crisis, and you know, usually during periods of market uncertainty, investors often flee to hard assets, uh, including commodities, to protect their investments from volatility. And what we saw happen after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank was that investors turned to gold and treasuries. And I'm wondering uh, if you saw a bump in interest in diamonds uh, during that period. Absolutely. In fact, we saw about a 300% increase in our normal demand over the following weeks on a, on a week-over-week basis. And we also saw a significant volume increase in our spot market where people were trading. A lot of people needed liquidity um, when their bank is getting shut down. So we kept our exchange open. We see over time that in continuing to build. And in fact, over the last two and a half years, which is since we've launched our diamond commodity, diamonds have appreciated by about 25%. So they've outperformed gold by about 20% in that same period. Gold is now starting to catch up. Um, in fact, it's outperformed diamonds in the last couple months. But we think that trend will continue over a long term. We think diamonds will continue to go up. Our estimate is 30% per year, actually. So let's talk a little bit more about performance because uh, obviously uh, our audience are investors and it's important to understand how you know, diamonds perform um, against other hard assets such as you, know, you mentioned gold, silver. Um, what about also how uh, diamonds perform against stocks and bonds and what's the correlation there? Uh, so that's interesting. So I, I look at 20 years of history. You know, my background, I was a trader at Tudor and at Millennium. And 
You, if you're looking at correlations, you want to really look at a large enough period of time. Over 20 years, there was an interesting trend. Number one, we had the first gold ETF, GLD, and then silver ETFs and others. So over 20 years, gold has actually gone up over 6x in value, and gold has significantly outperformed stocks on that long, long-term basis. Diamonds, on the other hand, were flat for the last 20 years, and it's really because diamonds were never financialized. You couldn't buy them as a futures contract or an ETF. So the ETF really drove gold to go up very significantly. As I mentioned in the last uh, two and a half years, that's been very different. Diamonds have significantly outperformed uh, gold uh, and stocks. Gold, diamonds outperformed stocks over the last two and a half years, not by much. Uh, as far as correlations and volatility, diamonds are extraordinarily interesting because they're absolutely uncorrelated even to gold. Gold and silver have a 0.78 correlation over both two years and 20 years. Gold and diamonds have a 0.0 correlation. Diamonds have a 0.0 correlation to stocks and bonds and all other precious commodities. So that makes it very interesting to an institutional investor because you have an asset that's a very large uh, a value at 1.2 trillion that is absolutely uncorrelated to everything else in the portfolio and is generating positive returns. The last part of that is the volatility. Diamonds over the last 20 years have been have a 3.8% volatility, which is about half of the volatility of other commodities. So that makes it a very interesting asset especially to institutional investors, which are among our largest, obviously, clients. Can you talk a little bit about demand and where that's coming from? I think you might have mentioned the demand is coming out of China. And obviously, you know, demand will increase um, uh, if supply is low, it will increase the prices. But I'm wondering also, in a recessionary environment, there's a lot of talk of recession in the US. Could that dampen demand for diamonds and therefore dampen price? It could, uh, there's a, diamonds are interesting uh, in general as an asset because to some extent they're very resistant to the economic environment because they're largely consumed by wealthier people. And as we've seen in the last you know 15 years, uh, prices can go up, but for wealthy people on a consumption basis, it's really not that material. So diamonds have slowed down and we've seen that across the world, especially in China, because of the COVID restrictions that dragged on and on for much longer. We think that the diamond commodities really reflect whatever's happening in, in the diamond market, which is really led by jewelry. The other aspect of that is synthetic diamonds. Those are growing in the scene. Uh, they have not so far had a negative impact on the demand for natural diamonds. That could change over time. But more interestingly, we've seen that synthetic diamonds have just collapsed in wholesale prices. In fact, they've fallen by about 90%. But the retail prices for synthetic diamonds have remained really very high. And that means that di synthetic diamonds are being marked up by 200, 300, even 400% as compared to natural diamonds in the retail market. So there's a lot of factors that we think can affect uh, natural diamond prices, but
But now, for the first time, you have an asset where you can express your opinion on that on that outlook. Outlook. So I'm wondering what you think are some of the, I guess, common misconceptions that investors might have about, uh, I guess, considering diamond investments, and maybe we can clear, I guess, clear up any some of those misconceptions or pitfalls that they think they might have to navigate when it comes to diamonds. There's well, there's a there's some there's some true and false false conceptions. Um, one false one is that that people think diamonds are really controlled by De Beers. Uh, and that they have a monopoly. And that that was true back until the uh, early 90s. But De Beers got broken up. And today they supply less than 30% of, of the diamonds. And the new diamonds that all of the mines produce are only about 1.2% per year compared to what's already above ground. So absolutely no vendor controls diamonds. It is true that diamonds are marked up quite a bit because they've gone, they go through so many hands. And so that's kind of a, a true conception. Um, a lot of people hear the term blood diamonds. And what they're referring to is there was a civil war in Sierra Leone back in the 80s and uh, early 90s. And because of that, the United Nations developed very stringent process called the Kimberley process to track the source of every diamond from the mine uh, and that's been in a, in a very successful program that absolutely eliminated blood diamonds. And diamonds contribute tremendously. I know you're from South Africa. They dis- contribute tremendously to the economy, creating very valuable jobs, uh, economic substance, mining, distribution, et cetera. So they're a very positive contributor to the economy. And, uh, you know, I compare that to synthetic diamonds which are basically just printed out by machines and one person can operate literally hundreds of these machines. And that's one you know, reason why synthetic diamonds have not held their value is that the marginal cost of producing them is, is very de minimis. Um, it is true that when you buy a diamond because it's of all those markups by the time it's bought at retail, when you try to sell it often at a pawn shop, which is uh, not a very motivated buyer, you really do take that tremendous haircut. We're solving all of these issues by creating this fungible product where we basically seal the diamonds at below wholesale cost. I just want to go back to one of the points you made earlier. I think you said there are sort of seven majors that are responsible for, I guess, diamond mining. And I believe Russia is certainly one of those uh, areas where diamonds come from, and I, and I wonder what happened last year with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. What impact that had on the price of diamonds or the supply of diamonds? Yeah, it was interesting. So the very quickly, the United States and Europe sanctioned the owners of Alrosa. Uh, the the CEO or the owner is, was former chief of staff to Vladimir Putin. So an insider was very quickly sanctioned. Uh, We, of course, can't buy any diamonds from any Russian vendors, but there is a big loophole. And it's it's a problem with the UN in that the same way Russia has a a vote at the top level of the UN and they can't really do much. But normally, conflict diamonds would be sanctioned and the diamonds themselves would be prohibited. But because Russia is able to veto that, 
Russian diamonds are still permitted to be sold to India. And once they're cut in India, then they're what they call that they're materially transformed and they legally become an Indian product. And we don't know uh, the original source. So we're, we're still, it's a very good chance that there are Russian diamonds in the diamond commodities and in all jewelry, because if they're cut in India, that's the loophole that they're still getting through. They're looking to try to close that and we'll see if they're successful. That's really interesting. So, Comic, for our listeners who are uh, obviously experienced investors who are interested in adding diamonds to their portfolios, what are the various options that they can look into? Right now, there's there's two. So right now, we have over 4,000 investors. A lot of them are family offices, some hedge funds, but a lot of individual investors have simply bought the commodity, and they just do that at diamondstandard.co. The vast majority of our clients choose to custody the diamond commodities at Brinks. And the benefit is that when you own the commodity and when you custody it at Brinks, you can sell it instantly, actually 24 hours a day on our spot market. About uh, 4% of our clients actually take delivery where they prefer to keep their diamond commodities at home. And, uh, you know, people use them as Christmas presents and Valentine's gifts and et cetera, or give them to their grandchildren. I've heard many times. A lot of clients, though, don't want to hold physical commodities, either at home or at Brinks. And a, a key example is an IRA fund. You are not permitted to hold diamond commodities or jewelry or art in an IRA fund. And for those types of investors, we've created a what's called the Diamond Standard Fund, which very simply buys commodities and allows you to own shares in that company that owns the commodities. And that has a third-party administrator, it has an auditor, and a segregated custody at Brinks. So that vehicle allows a lot of RIA firms who generally don't hold commodities it allows them to offer this asset to their clients, but a very large other customer base are IRA investors who want to hold the fund. So one quick follow-up question before I get to the audience questions, and, and that is whether you have any plans to launch an exchange-traded funds. I'm sure our listeners are familiar with gold ETFs that own not the companies that are mining, but the actual physical bullion. And I'm wondering whether a diamond equivalent may be in the offing in the years to come. Yes, absolutely. In fact, we have filed an S1 with the SEC and in partnership with the New York Stock Exchange. So we are actively planning a U.S. ETF. But the rules in U.S. are, are very strict. You have to first have your futures contract live. We actually have approval for futures that will be listing on the CME Globex, but they're not live yet. So until that happens, we cannot launch in the U.S., However, we are also planning exchange-traded commodities and exchange-traded products in several other countries, and we think those will actually launch first as soon as this year. That's exciting. We're going to hop over now to audience questions, and Kristen has actually a four-part question, but I think you have touched on some of these uh, in your comments. I'll just sort of run through these, but you can just recap some of the points. Uh, he asks, how diversified is the diamond industry nowadays in terms of companies that provide and control the supply? And I believe you mentioned it's about seven. How volatile are diamond prices? 
what do you see as the risks for the next 10 years? And are artificial diamonds uh, an issue or risk too? Yeah, those are great questions. So there's seven sisters, which are the, the main, they control the actual raw mines. But there's about 300 competitive diamond cutting companies. They buy the rough diamonds, cut them, and polish them. A lot of them are in India. They used to be in Tel Aviv and New York, but those are now really larger diamonds are cut in those markets. Most of the small diamonds are actually cut in India. And we have about, I don't know, 150 vendors in India. And so that's a very competitive market. As far as the volatility, uh, as I mentioned, 3.8% has been the commodities volatility. What you'll also see is, is volatility between different colors. So things will become more or less fashionable uh, or different markets as they grow, they have a preference for higher or lower quality. So like in the US, we like our diamonds big. In Japan, they like their diamonds flawless. And uh, that makes them much smaller for the average user. So as those markets grow, the demand within the diamond market can change. With our commodities though, the content never changes. The prices may go up and down, but the, the gemological aspect of every bar is what's always standardized. Uh, you asked about the risks. We mentioned several of them. I think um, the, the main risk is synthetic diamonds, that if, for example, it was impossible to differentiate synthetic from natural, that would be a major problem. But right now, it's actually quite easy. Any gem lab and most jewelers can use you know, small equipment, it costs hundreds of dollars, and they can actually differentiate natural diamonds from lab-grown diamonds, which are still chemically diamonds. It's just that the growth pattern of natural diamonds takes place over hundreds of thousands, even millions of years, whereas synthetic diamonds, it may be chemically the same that they grow over, over a couple of weeks. So that's actually very apparent at a structural level. Um, but artificial diamonds are growing. We think it's a very positive thing because we expect natural diamonds are going to be going up in price very significantly. I mentioned that gold has gone up 6x relative to diamonds over 20 years. We think diamonds will catch up with gold, meaning that natural diamonds we expect to go up in price by three, four, even five times their current price, which means that synthetic diamonds will need to take the place of natural in jewelry stores like Zales and, and uh, Jared, et cetera, the mall-based jewelry stores. We think Cartier will never sell synthetic diamonds because they're simply not luxury. So we're almost out of time, but I've got one more question before we wrap up. And it's also related to risk, but more about company risk. So Divya Raj asks, how does the company manage risk, especially since the fintech landscape is innovating so frequently? Well, one key aspect is that we're regulated so uh, and audited by Deloitte. So we have regulatory capital that we had to establish with our regulator. We have transparency and and. Uh, change management and redundancy in everything we do. But also we made the commodity standalone. Everything is on a public blockchain. So even if we go out of business, the commodities actually still work. All their information is published. People can still trade them. 
as far as uh, R&D, we're, I think, very much at the cutting edge of, of blockchain development, but we're agnostic. So we actually support multiple blockchains. We're not pigeonholed into one individual platform. So as new technologies develop, we built our commodity because the chip is built in. It can attach to different blockchains or transaction networks as they evolve. So I'm going to squeeze in one more question. And you did touch on this, uh, but maybe we can repeat this. So Enil says, India has been making artificial diamonds and one can't distinguish them from real diamonds unless examined closely. How does a novice investor differentiate between the two? Yeah, so every diamond, if, you're, if, if, if someone gives you a diamond, you would have to send it to a lab to, to differentiate. In the case of our commodities, every diamond is actually graded by two competing labs the GIA and the IGI, and they would love to catch, catch each other making a mistake. So in our commodities, you can simply use a magnifying glass and you can see the flaws in the diamond and verify that they match the flaws on the certificate. So there's really no way to uh, create a uh, counterfeit diamond standard commodity because of all the layers of technology. But for a consumer with an individual diamond, you have to send it to a reputable gem lab, but they can tell very easily. Okay, I'm going to squeeze in one more. Ronald asks, what is the industrial use for diamonds and does this affect the pricing of diamonds? So our commodity uses 94% of, of gem quality diamonds. So that's the diamonds that you'll find in a jewelry store. Uh, industrial diamonds, that has actually been a very successful use case for synthetic because historically, they would use the shavings and the scrap from diamond cutting, use those, sweep them up, and use them for, uh, for grinding and for drills, bits, et cetera. But now it's a lot easier just to grow very tiny diamonds in exactly the size and consistency that you want. So dramatically more application of synthetic diamonds are being realized in the industrial diamond world. It has been a fascinating conversation, uh, Cormac. Unfortunately, we, we're out of time. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, thank you to the audience for tuning in. And thank you, especially Cormac, for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you. We hope the rest of you can join us again tomorrow. Market Watch personal finance reporter Andrew Keshner talks to Michael Greenwald, partner at Markham, on how taxes work now and the debates on changes ahead. Thank you for listening. Be well.